All right, friends. Well, as I said, we're so glad that you're here with us today. We are finishing up our series on God, the gospel, and sex. And, you know, we timed out having the sex series on Mother's Day. And there's a joke in there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to leave it alone. But you can fill in the blank of whatever joke you want to make there. Uh, Hey, so here's what we've been doing. We have been uh, trying to understand how God designed sex for his purposes so that we might delight in him more. That's really the basic thesis of the whole series is God has given us sex as a gift. He designed it. He delights in it. It's not something that we're meant to look at as a low thing. We're meant to see it as a high thing. Uh, And the higher view of it we have, the more we're able to harness it for the purposes of God in our lives. And so That's what we've been trying to grapple with. Now, we've grappled with the implications of that for our marriages to some degree, in our singleness, uh, as it relates to our sexual orientation. We've talked about that. And so uh, I hope these last three weeks have been of service to you. My hope, my real hope as your pastor has been that you have felt just really saturated in God's word around this topic of sex so that you wouldn't feel like you're just getting a human perspective or view on sexuality, but that you're getting God's perspective, God's view on why he designed it, what he says about it, why he delights in it, so that we might use it towards the ends that God intends. So for lack of a better title, I'm giving this sermon the title From Design to Practice, because we've been talking about the idea of God's design of sex. But I recognize what that leaves sort of unsaid is, well, okay, how do we then practice what God has designed. So most of what we talked about have been ideas, right? And you know, ideas are valuable because our beliefs, what we think, ultimately shape what we do. Uh, And so we always spend a lot of time, honestly, in church trying to impart beliefs, ideas into our minds, into our hearts, so that we might grapple with those, wrestle with them, and then live according to what we are told in the Word of God is true. But... uh, it is helpful from time to time not just to spend time talking about ideas, right, that shape the way we think. Okay, we gave our four pillars of a Christian view of sex, and those have implications for how we live in our singleness and in our marriages. No doubt about it. But then there's some, there's some amount of understanding, like, well, okay, well, how do I do that then? How do I go out and actually practice the thing that God's design calls me to do? And that's what we want to spend our time talking about today. My hope is that it would be an exceedingly practical kind of close to this series so that we might examine in our singleness and in our marriages in particular, which we all fit in one of those categories. So in our singleness or in our marriages, how is it that we apply God's design? I mean, how do we walk out what God has designed? Now, That's what we're going to talk about today. That's the question we're going to try and answer. But there's something that's important that we get at first. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, go with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to start. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll we'll put the verses up on the screen for you. Here's the general principle I want you to get. And this applies to striving to apply God's design in sex as much as to, it really applies in any in any area of our lives where we are trying to walk according to God's standard, all right? So we might say where we're trying to put away sin and start to walk in righteousness, where we're trying to apply God's design, whether it be in sex or with our money or whether it be in our uh, interpersonal relationships, just friendships. There's a general principle that I think is very powerful and, and needs to be understood about how transformation actually happens, about how a person actually changes. Now, a lot of times we think about gratitude for the cross when it comes to Christians and how we think about changing. That there's this idea that we are grateful for what Christ has done on the cross. That's true, right? Yes, church? Yeah, we're grateful for what he's done. And therefore, we look back to that event and we say, I'm so thankful that I'm now going to live in response to what he has done. And that's very true and that's good. But my guess is if you're like me, you have had moments, experiences where you have been 
trying to live out God's design and found that gratitude ultimately was not enough, that you ended up gravitating back towards those same, same practices, those same sins that you wrestled with, that gratitude for a while was able to kind of keep you on the straight and narrow. And then after a while, gratitude seemed to wear thin as a motivation. Have you experienced that? And the reason that is, is because gratitude was not meant biblically to be ultimately our driving force for righteousness. Our driving force for righteousness is the same force that saves us, and that's faith. Faith is both the thing that saves us, or in Christian theological terms, justifies us, and it is the thing that sanctifies us or makes us more like Jesus. So gratitude has power, but not ultimate power. Gratitude is meant to be brought together with faith, and when gratitude and faith come together, they help us walk out God's design in all areas of our lives. So what I, what I really, I mean, the, the easiest way to understand that is this. I'm going to connect faith to the promise of God in, in just a second. But the easiest way to understand it is this, is that in order to really apply God's design, and we'll say specifically for today's purposes, in this area of sex, in order to apply his design, we have to replace lesser desires with greater desires. And that's where faith is going to come into play. We're going to have to replace lesser desires with greater desires. Now, how many of you know that whenever you want to, whenever you're striving to do something, you have a goal, you want to run a marathon or get in shape or you want to, you know, stay after a diet or whatever it may be, right? These are just pretty typical goals that we might have. Whenever you have a goal, ultimately uh, your desire, you can't let go of the things that prevent you from accomplishing that goal if the desire for that thing is greater than the desire for the thing that you want to accomplish, right? So ultimately, none of us are made, in fact, John Piper says this, I think it's really helpful, uh, in his book, Future Grace, which I would highly recommend to you, is kind of on this subject matter. He says that our hearts are desire factories. In other words, they are made by God to produce desires. And so we need to take advantage of that fact to where we, when we want to walk in, in a right way, when we want to walk and put away sin, we don't just tell ourselves, stop doing the thing that I shouldn't do. We have to replace that thing with something we desire more. We have to begin to desire something more than we desire the thing that we love and that leads us to sin. You don't and I don't move towards things that are sinful because we do so out of a sense of obligation or duty, do we? We move towards them because we love them. We move towards them because we think they hold some promise for us of a better life or because something in us has affection for that thing. The only way to get rid of that affection is to have a greater affection for something greater. You with me, church? That's tremendously important. Now, the, the good news is nothing can create greater desire than God himself. There is no one and nothing in the world that when we see it correctly and rightly, there is nothing that can fuel desire and passion in a heart the way God can. We have a God who is transcendent and eminent, who is loving and gracious and powerful, who created everything that there is, who makes us just a great treasure trove of promises about what he has done and what he will do in our lives. God means for our desires to be stoked to a white hot passion for him. And if we wanna to learn to let go of sin, that's, that's the key. So here's what I wanna say. In our journey to overcome sinful patterns in our lives, in particular in our sex lives, the, most, the thing we need most is actually not lessons about sex. The thing we need most has nothing to do with sex. The thing we need most is a passion for God. And as we're passionate about him and delight in him and love him, we will find that that greater desire for him supplants our lesser desire for the things that lead us astray in the realm of sex. 
That's a, that's a pivotal sort of general uh, principle that we need to understand. It's the mindset that we need to have. Now look at how Peter puts it in 2 Peter. Now let's say how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this. His, meaning God's, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, Peter's writing there, and he's giving us essentially a connect the dots uh, series of verses. He's saying this leads to this, which leads to this. So let's just follow the flow of the passage here for a moment and see what he says. So first he says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that we need to live a godly life. In other words, he's all the things that are truly life. God has given us power to live according to those things. And he's given us all things that we need to walk in godliness. So that's where he starts. So now again, if you're trying to put away sin and you're trying to walk in God's ways according to his design, then your interest should be piqued right away because you look at it and you go, aha, he's gonna say something about how godliness is acquired He's saying God has given us everything we need. Well, what has he given us that we need in order to acquire godliness? So let's see what he says the next then. He says he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And then this keyword through. So that's going to tell us what? How godliness is accomplished. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Okay, so do you see what he's just said? The dots he's just connected. He has said that if you want to partake of life and godliness, which God has given us everything that we need for, if you want to do it, then you do it through the knowledge of him. In other words, the greater your desire and passion for him, the greater your knowledge of him and awareness of him, the more you know him, the more you will walk in godliness. Do you see the connection, church? So it's straightforward, it's simple, right? It's not complicated, but he's gonna add one more thing. He's gonna say, okay, so this is back to our idea that our hearts are desire factories and we must create, we must, we must take advantage of that to fan the flame of desire for God if we want to put away sexual unrighteousness. So to have godliness, you must know God. That's what he says, and we know God in Christ. But then as if to make sure that we don't just think it's some basic ideas about God that we need to acquire, he says... Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Peter can't resist there just for a moment. Telling you about the glory and the excellence of God. The one to whom you have been called. And then he goes on to say, by which, by his glory and excellence, we have been granted, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Okay, so he's He's bookending now at the end of this little section and at the beginning of it, he said, you've got everything you need for godliness through the knowledge of God. Then he goes on to say, at the very end, you will become partakers of the divine nature. So what is in between the knowledge of God and the divine natures of which we will, of divine nature of which we will become partakers? And I don't know if you noticed it, but it's what? The promises of God. Did you catch that? His very great promises is what the text says. So in other words, if I want to walk in godliness, I need to know God. If I'm gonna know God, how am I gonna know him? Through his precious and very great promises. 
In other words, in the gospel, in Jesus, we have been given immense promises. Have you ever pondered the things that have been promised to you because you know Jesus? I hope so. Some of us think maybe, well, I've been promised that I'm not gonna go to hell, I'm gonna go to heaven, and that's about as far as it goes for us. But friends, could I just encourage you to think much more deeply about what you have when you have Jesus? Because when you have him, you have all the promises of God. In fact, the Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We have promises that will never be forsaken, that will never be alone. We have promises that no matter what we do, we can be forgiven. We have promises that he is able to give purpose and meaning to life. We have promises that he will guide and direct our paths and our steps. We have promises that all of our suffering is light and momentary compared with the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed in us one day when we're brought home. That's just, that's the tip of the iceberg, friends. It's through the promises of God. And by the way, not just knowing that he's made those promises, but faith to believe that those promises will come to fruition. When we believe that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, we can have faith that those promises will come to pass. That begins to stoke desire for God. So we know God through his promises and we become partakers of the divine nature when we have faith in those promises. That's why faith is ultimately the vehicle towards righteousness, not just gratitude. Do you see it? It's faith that leads us to righteousness. It's faith that gives us passion for God, which causes us to put away all of our lesser passions. Now listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 8. I don't know if you remember this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, He's doing the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Right? And he says all these different things about people who are blessed. And one of the things he says is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see God. What's what's Jesus doing there? He is trying to replace our lesser desires for impure things with a greater desire for God to see him knowing that that should be the immense, perfect motivation to drive us to want to be pure in heart. Do you see the connection? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Folks, I would just say nothing could be more practical than this verse. This one has got to be burned on your brain. This is the one that when I'm in the, in, the mag, in the checkout line at the grocery store and the magazines are all lined up that my eyes want to gravitate towards, I have this internal dialogue with myself that says, no, no, don't gaze upon that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And immediately what runs through my mind is the foolishness of my brain that I think that a fleeting pleasure of a glance is somehow better than seeing God. If you want to rid yourself of sin, you have to stoke your desire for God and remember the promises of God that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You've got to sear that on the brain so that when temptation comes, you are reminded, I would be a fool, an absolute fool to trade seeing God and intimacy with him for whatever this thing is that I'm tempted to partake of. How foolish would I have to be to make that trade? And when you begin to put it in those terms, doesn't it begin to seem a little more foolish to take advantage of whatever this thing is? I think it does. Now, that's our general principle. So here's what I wanna do. Now, you know that every time we come together here, essentially what we're trying to do is is fan the flame of your passion for God, right? That every time we come here, we are trying to center our affections and, and lift up our eyes to see a God who is high and exalted and beyond us and other than us and yet loving and just and merciful. We're trying to, to call our affections towards the one true king. 
And so we could really, just based on what I've just said, if we're gonna say, okay, well, how do we practice God's design for sex? We could just spend all of our time now talking about the greatness and the grandeur of God so that that, fame, that uh, flame would be fanned into a white-hot passion. We could do that. In essence, that's what we do every time we gather. And so I think what's best for us in this space, what I wanna do is just give some very tangible practices, some tangible things that we might do both in our singleness and in our marriage that will help us to walk in God's design for sex. Knowing that that general principle is that we have to stoke our affections for God if we wanna put away our affections for lesser things. So let's talk about that. Now notice when I said, I said more tangible, not more practical, because there's nothing more practical than fanning the, the flame of your affection for God. There's nothing more, that is the most practical thing that you can do to rise early in the morning, to go to prayer before God, to find any means that you can to, uh, to build your affection for God. Now, let's talk then about these categories in our singleness and in our marriages. So let's start with in our singleness. Now, God's design for sex uh, then calls us in our singleness to practice abstinence, to be celibate, right? To forego sex uh, until we are married. So that's the clear implication that we got from God's design as we've been working through this series. So then the question becomes, okay, well, how do I walk out that design? How do I do that, right? If I'm a single guy, if I'm a single girl, how do I actually practice it? Because it's hard. Would we all agree that it's hard? Yeah, absolutely. So none of this is meant to say this is easy, but there are things that need to be put in place that will help us walk in God's design. Number one, I would say is this. I'm gonna hit these kind of quick. Number one is fill your time with kingdom building endeavors. Fill your time with kingdom building endeavors. And that's, that's fruitful, first and foremost, because if you are busy about the things of God's kingdom, you typically do not have time for the things that are not of his kingdom, right? Fair enough. We fill up our time with things that are of eternal importance. There's less time for things that are not of eternal importance. Now think about what 1 Corinthians chapter 7 said when it talked about singleness and therefore abstinence, right? Paul says that if you are uh, single, you are able to be devoted to the Lord, single-minded in your devotion to the Lord. He actually says the married man and the married woman are anxious about the things of the world, but the unmarried person is anxious about the things of the Lord. And so he's, he's actually raising up singleness as this saying it has immensely high value in God's kingdom economy. There are things that God wants to accomplish in the world that can only be accomplished through single people. And so he says, some of you are gonna be called. And he actually says, I wish Paul's single. And he says to everybody he's writing to, I wish you were like me. He means single. I wish that you were like I am because then you would have undivided devotion to the Lord, no distractions from that. Now, we can talk about what that means for marriages and stuff maybe another time. But the idea is this, is that singleness and, and therefore abstinence in your singleness is a kingdom building endeavor. Now, the beauty of that is this. Go back to what we said in our four pillars of a Christian view of sex. We said that sex is not just meant to teach us about the nature of God, not just to teach us about the love of Jesus. It's meant to do both those things in our marriages. It's also meant to be a kingdom building endeavor because sex produces families and families are meant to be places where God's fame goes forward from them, that they are, they are uh, bases from which we launch kingdom mission. Now, if you begin to see sex in that way and you begin to understand singleness and abstinence as also an opportunity to be a part of kingdom-building endeavors, then you don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about wanting to be a part of this kingdom-building endeavor. You say, I've been given the kingdom-building and endeavor of my context and I can walk in it. So far from just saying, be about kingdom-building endeavors because then you won't have time for other activities that are less pleasing to God, 
we also understand that being about kingdom building endeavors shows us uh, the kingdom building nature of sex itself and the right context for it. So that might be a bit confusing, but let's, let's just leave it at that. Let's move to the next one for the sake of time, okay? The second one is this. Remind yourself of the earthly and eternal cost. Remind yourself of the earthly and eternal cost of sexual unrighteousness. And here's what I mean by that. There's an earthly cost and there is a potential eternal cost to sexual immorality. I wanna show you what they are. Look at Proverbs chapter seven. This, by the way, is another good one to have burned on the brain. It says this. This is uh, the writer of Proverbs. He is looking out at a young man and he says this. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. In other words, she pretends to be a a religious or upright person. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with covering colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. In other words, he's not gonna be back for a while. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Now listen to verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. In other words, what the writer of Proverbs is saying, he's comparing wisdom and foolishness. And he's saying that there is, he's not talking about it will cost him his life in an eternal sense. He literally means that there is a high cost to sexual immorality in this life. It may be relational, maybe physical, maybe emotional, but there is a cost to be paid when we partake of sexual immorality. My guess is if you have walked down that road, as many of us have, that you have found out about that cost, that you have felt the weight of it that you have felt the weight of it emotionally, you felt the weight of it relationally, you felt the weight of it physically, my guess is. Now, friends, here's what I want you to understand. I'm gonna say that as a word of condemnation. What I say it as is a word of, of warning and understanding. See, the, the best thing the Bible does for us when it calls us to sexual righteousness is it points us to who Jesus is and what he's done and the relationship we can have with God and how sex is meant to reveal that to us. It paints a great picture of sex for us. But the other thing that it does is it comes around on the backside of that and says not only is it great and therefore should be reserved for a specific context with a specific person, it says there are also dangers associated with it. And I want you to be aware of those. Do you see how he's surrounding us with motivations? He's saying not only is there such good to be had in it, there's such harm to be avoided when you use it inappropriately. Friends, our, our, our dangers in the realm of sex, right? Sex is, in terms of building God's kingdom and in terms of worshiping God and following, sex is not a danger to us. 
Sex is a blessing to us, but misused sex is a great danger. Do you understand the difference between those two? Sex and misused sex are two very different things. So the writer of Proverbs is saying about this young man, and I have this image just ingrained in my mind. It's just ingrained. He just, like an ox to the slaughter. Do you see the imagery of that? He's just being led, just like an ox to the slaughter, by his desires, by his longings. He hasn't put them in check. He hasn't exercised wisdom. And now here he is, he's gonna be led just right to the slaughter. It will cost him his life. You need to know that there's a cost with sexual morality. Now that's the earthly cost that we're talking about. Now let's hear the words of Jesus because these are ones that we don't like to focus on very much, but let's be, make sure that we let God's word have its full weight with us. Listen to Matthew chapter five, verse 27 through 30. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so what's he done? He's just raised the bar. It's not just physical, physically the act of adultery. It's the act of gazing upon someone who's not your spouse with lustful, with a lustful gaze, with a desire for that person. When we've done that, we've committed adultery. So what he's just done is he's trapped us all underneath the sin of adultery, hasn't he? He's just said, you're, you're, every single one of you now have just been come under this category. And then he says this, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now hear the warning of Jesus, friends. Because here's what we do. We read this and we recognize, okay, when Jesus says, cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye, well, we recognize that he's probably speaking metaphorically, or he is speaking metaphorically there, because look, if my right eye is giving me a problem, my left eye is still gonna give me a problem once my right eye is gone. Like, my problem is not gone, right? And so he's not, he's not saying literally, about what he's saying is, do everything within your power to fight against sin. Do not take it lightly, take it seriously. And whatever you have to, whatever cost you need to pay to get rid of it, get rid of it. But here's the warning about eternal loss and that we need to understand is I don't know if you caught it, but he said at the end of that, it is better to lose one of your members than to have that eye, that hand, and be cast where? Into hell. Now, here's what we do, because this is right doctrine. If you know Jesus, you can't lose your salvation. Let's affirm that. That's good and right doctrine. The scriptures teach it so clearly. But what we do is we use that truth to then come underneath what we've just read here in Matthew chapter five and say, well, I, I have a relationship with Jesus, therefore I can't lose my salvation. So we undermine the weight of Jesus's warning here. And my friends, don't use the doctrine of eternal security of salvation to undermine the warning of Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave us the doctrine of eternal security and salvation. So what's he saying? He's not saying that you're in danger of losing your salvation. He's, what he's saying is you're in danger of of basically revealing that you've been pretending to have a relationship with God if you continue in sexual immorality. If you walk in it perpetually, it doesn't mean you never make a mistake. It doesn't mean you never mess up. It means you fight against your sin. You fight against your sin. That's the marker of someone who knows Jesus and in whom God's spirit resides. Not perfection, but fighting against sin again and again, over and over. When you're weary, you pick up your sword and you fight again. You don't give up. You don't lay down. You don't give in. And when you do, you repent and you fight again 
and you surround yourself with people who will fight with you. But friends, listen to me. Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's verse 4, says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. It's the same idea, right, that Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. He's saying, strive with everything in you to fight against your sin. And here's what I would say. Like in our battle against sexual sin, we have not yet striven to the point of giving up our smartphones. We have not yet striven against our sexual sin to the point of cutting off our internet connection. We have not yet striven against sexual sin to cutting off our magazine subscription that is a safe magazine. We have not yet striven against it to the point where we say, I'm not gonna be alone in the house with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm gonna go on double dates. We're gonna be in public. Friends, listen to me. Do you need your smartphone more than you need to not go to hell? Answer that question for me. You don't, I I didn't mean literally, but you guys are awesome. (laughs) I asked for it and I got it back. Thank you. Yeah. That's the thing that's been weighing on me this week. Friends, whatever is tempting you into sin, get rid of it. Don't you understand the possibly eternal consequences of giving into this over and over again? What we do is we fill our minds with some new truth. We read a new book and we get some accountability and we think that's enough. You have not yet changed the structures of your life to the degree that you need to to overcome this sin. It will get a hold of you. There are, there are physiological um, implications. There are things that happen in our brain with the release of dopamine when it comes to gazing at images we shouldn't be gazing at, when it comes to participating in the act of sex. And that physical reaction will drive us to long for those things. You have got to eliminate the things that allow you to be driven towards that temptation. Get rid of them. It's not worth having them in your life. I don't care what it is. No more cable, no more internet, no more smartphone. Look, I know the flip phone ain't cool, but you can make a call and send a text and that's all you really need to do. Get rid of it. Cut it out of your life. And don't look, don't tell yourself, I'm strong enough to have it and, and use it well. If you have had a pattern of falling into this temptation then get rid of the thing that you are using and surrendering to in the temptation. Just get rid of it. If you wanna walk in righteousness, that's how you walk in righteousness. You pay any cost because the danger is so real. Listen to the warning of Jesus. Friends, listen, don't listen to my words. Listen to the warning of Jesus. Cut off the hand, pluck out the eye, so that you would not be in danger of hell. All right. Let's talk about in our marriages here for a minute. And let's just hit these quickly. I'm not gonna drive you to scripture verses on these. I just wanna say them to you. So we said that in our marriages, so that's in our singleness, and that's the whole, how do we abstain, and how do we walk in righteousness in that way? But there's a righteousness to be walked in in marriages that is proactive in our sex lives with our spouse, How do we walk in righteousness there? I'm gonna give you a couple. So how do we harness sex really to know more about the nature of God? How do we harness sex to know about the love of Jesus and to extend God's kingdom? Here's just a few things. Number one, remember that sex is covenant renewal. Now, you sealed your vows when you got married with sex. That's that's 
the way we think about it. Your vows were sealed then by the sexual union of husband and wife. But don't you know that every time you come together in sexual union, you are renewing your covenant vows with one another? That's a beautiful way to picture your sexual intimacy with your spouse. This isn't just an act that we're partaking of. It's a renewal of our committed vows to one another, of the covenant we have with one another. And every time we do that, every time we partake of this physical union, to remind ourselves of the covenant we've made with one another, we are reminded of God's covenant with us. When you make sexual union about vow renewal, you make it a reminder of the vows that God has made to us, his promises to us in the covenant that we have with him. Do you follow that, church? So look, here's something you can do. Take your vows that you made, print them up on some nice paper and put them in a frame and put them in your house where you're gonna see them all the time. All right, we've done this in our house. And I'll tell you, it's not just good in terms of like making sure that you're thinking about sex as a covenant renewal. It's good in every area of life because I tell you, there's too many times where I have walked into the bathroom after being in a fight with my wife and just being a jerk and looking and seeing that frame. I don't even have to read the vows anymore. I know what they are. And I look at the frame and I just think to myself, Dang it, why is that there? I don't want that there right now. And I gotta walk back out of the bathroom and I'm gonna go, honey, I'm very sorry. I failed to fulfill my vows to you. I made promises and I have not lived out those promises. Would you forgive me? Life usually goes well when that happens, right? And now you know that our vows are in our bathroom, which is more information than you needed. (laughs) It's all right, you know? The second thing I would say is Never let sex be an isolated expression of love. Never let sex be an isolated expression of love. Sex is meant to be uh, one aspect by which we express our love to our spouse. And so one of the things that we need to ask ourselves before we would initiate or participate in sex is, have I done all the other things that I need to do to express my love for this person? Words of affirmation. Have I spoken my love to this person? Have I, act, have I served them well? Have I done the things that would communicate love to them? And my friends, let me just encourage you to never uh, move towards the bedroom without first making sure that you've asked the question, have we, have we communicated love and the full expression of love and our covenant together in all the ways that God calls us to? Now, we're gonna fall short in that, but it's when we isolate and separate sex and pursue it as the sort of ultimate expression of our love and covenant with one another that we really miss the ball. Because what God calls us to is not just one expression of covenant love, but a myriad of expressions of covenant love. You you with me? You follow that? And so how do we make sure and ensure in ourselves that we are rounding out the fullness of our expression of our covenant with one another by loving one another in all the small ways and in the big ones that God has called us to? The last one I'll say is this, and it's related. It's delight in the whole person, not just their body. Delight in the whole person, not just their body. C.S. Lewis says it well. He says, sexual desire without love, what he calls eros, sexual desire without love wants it, meaning sex, the thing in itself. Love wants the beloved. Now love makes a man really want not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. No lover in the world ever sought the embraces of the woman he loved as a result of a calculation, however unconscious, that they would be more pleasurable than those of any other woman. In other words, what he's saying, what Lewis is saying is this, is that uh, we are designed to delight not in an act, but in a person. 
And this couldn't be truer, a truer reflection of what our relationship with God is like. We're not meant to delight in what God does for us. Now, we talked about his promises that he's made to us, things that he will do for us, but we don't ultimately delight in those promises, do we? We delight in who the promises reveal God to be. And so we delight in him. And the same is true with our spouses. We delight not in the pleasure that they can bring us in sex. We delight in the person that they are. And sex is meant to be an expression of our pleasure with them as a whole person, not just their body. And so my encouragement to you, men and women alike, is that you would go to great lengths to extend your pleasure with the whole person that is your spouse in your marriage, to delight in them in every way God gives you opportunity. And sex is one way in which you delight in them. It's one way in which you delight in them and express that delight. It's a good thing to do. It's a good way to express that delight. But it falls empty when you are only delighting in the act itself and not delighting in the whole person. You with me? Now, friends, look, I know that when you talk about sex, you're gonna hit on a lot of sore spots. You're gonna hit on a lot of spots that need redeeming love poured over them. A lot of places where God's offer of forgiveness and mercy and to take away shame when we repent where there is, it's, just, it's just needed. And, and I'm not unaware of that. That's what I want you to know. So let me close by saying this. This whole series, I hope that you've seen the goodness of sex, God's delight and design of it. I hope you know too that where you have fallen short, as we all have fallen short, our God is a God who makes all things new. Where you have maybe destroyed a relationship because of choices you've made in this arena, God can restore that where you have made choices uh, and now you want to begin to make different choices in preparation for a someday marriage, God can restore and renew. Second Corinthians chapter five says that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And Revelation says, behold, this is Jesus talking at the end of all things, behold, I make all things new. And that's not just true someday, it's true now. It's true today that Jesus is able to come and make all things new make new our practices, make new our structures that we implement in our lives, make new our emotions, make new our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want so much to walk with you faithfully. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come in and each one of us has walked a different journey in this and we have all fallen, we have all failed. And so we need you to come in with your strength and your protection and your forgiving love And we need you to cause us to walk in righteousness and to give us strength. Help us to partner with you well and to surrender to you in your ways. Help us to be, uh, as a church family, a place where we can confess our sin and be embraced and loved uh, and then encouraged and walked alongside of to to go and sin no more, as you said in John chapter eight. Help us to go and sin no more. We want that because we want you and because you're so good. So we delight in you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.